0: Today on Something You Should Know, if you tend to snack a bit too much, there are certain times of the day you are most likely to overdo it, and you should know what those times are. Also, when solving a problem or creating a new idea, there's no one right way to do it.
1: And I think that the creative process becomes halted when we try to go in a very logical way from the beginning to the middle to the end, because the creative process is anything but that.
0: Also, double standard parenting. A lot of parents do it unknowingly. And video games. They're not all about shooting and blowing things up. There's a whole other side of video games you probably
2: don't know. There's one game called Passage. It takes five minutes to play. And it's a profoundly moving experience because every decision we make in the game opens up new options and closes off some, which to me sounds an awful lot like my real life.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Have you ever had that experience where you thought something was true? It's your experience that it's true. And then, sure enough, along comes some scientists to confirm that what you thought is actually true. And that's going to happen today. I've always thought, at least in my own experience, that my best work doesn't come from sitting down with a pen and, and, and trying to solve a problem or, or to, to sit down and focus on the problem at hand. Very often, my best work comes from distracting myself or, you know, standing in the shower or doodling or doing something else. And uh, that's going to be confirmed today by my first guest coming up in just a moment. And I think you're going to find it fascinating. Our first topic today is about weight loss. If you're watching your weight, beware of 7 p.m. on Sunday night. That's fat o'clock, according to a snacking survey. 7 to 10 p.m. on Sunday is prime time to crave fattening comfort food. And if you manage to make it through that three-hour time period on Sunday, be careful of the next day from 3 to 5 p.m., Those afternoon hours are the next most dangerous danger zone for dieters on any given day, followed by the period of 5 to 7 p.m. Another fat phenomenon discovered in this survey is that you can derail your dieting by eating lunch at your desk. Those who do say they tend to eat more later in the day, likely because they're less satisfied by their multitasking lunch. And that is something you should know. How many times have you been told to focus, pay attention, work on the problem, come up with an idea, get to work? And the idea behind all of this is that you'll do your best work by focusing on and trying to do your best work. Well, maybe not, at least not in all cases. Maybe to get the best ideas, we need to unfocus, doodle, daydream, and not pay such close attention to what we're doing, but allow allow your mind to wander and go someplace else. Dr. Srini Pillay is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist. He's founder of NeuroBusiness Group, an executive coaching, consulting, and technology business. And he has a, a new book out called Tinker, Dabble, doodle try. Welcome to the program Srini.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So this idea that we need to focus that that's how we do our best work is with this laser-like focus. Are you saying that's all wrong?
1: Well, focus in general is obviously important. You know, it's not possible to finish tasks if we don't actually focus on things, but for the, for a long time people believed that focus was the most important faculty. And what we've now found is that unfocus may be at least as important, if not more important than focus. Because in the brain, there are both focus and unfocus circuits, and they need to work together for optimal productivity and creativity
0: and and yet the things that you recommend that people do to unfocus are exactly the kind of things that people think of when they think of someone who's not getting the job done that's who's not who who's lazy
1: well they may sound like that but they're not exactly the same so I'll give you an example so i'm um, i'm i'm definitely not prescribing just distraction because i think distraction and daydreaming by itself Is not necessarily helpful. And there are three kinds of daydreaming that have been studied. Jerome Singer, who studied this since the 1950s, has pointed out that slipping into a daydream is more like falling off a cliff. And having some kind of guilty uh, rehashing of something is also not helpful. But what is helpful is positive, constructive daydreaming. And what's different about this is number one, you can build it into your day. Number two, you initiate it with some kind of playful or wishful imagery, and number three, it is best done with some kind of low key activity like knitting or gardening rather than doing doing it when you are completely wiped out and These three things will allow you to then withdraw your attention from what's outside reorient your attention to what's inside and what studies are now showing is that it activates the unfocused circuit in the brain which then does what seems like something quite magical the moment you start to redirect your attention using positive constructive daydreaming which can be abbreviated as pcd you actually change the way the brain operates and to make this simpler if you think about the brain like like a silverware set just metaphorically When focus is on, your brain acts like a fork. It essentially picks up the solid pieces of your identity. However, when unfocus is invited to the table, it then invites a bunch of other silverware. There's a spoon for picking up the delicious melange of flavors of your identity. There are chopsticks which make connections across the brain. And then there are also things like marrow spoons, which go into the nooks and crannies of your brain to find pieces of information that focus would never be able to find. And so with this new set of silverware that the unfocused circuit will actually bring to the fore, you have a much fuller sense of self. And with this fuller sense of self, you can have a greater sense of motivation, you can feel more energized, and also more creative. And that's exactly what the studies show.
0: Wow. And now I'm hungry from your... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) So you
0: said something a moment ago, though, that that this works better if you're doing something like knitting rather than just lying there being wiped out. Am I correct?
1: That's correct. The whole idea about this unfocused circuit is it actually uses 20% of the body's energy. So the brain just occupies 2% of the body's volume, and at rest, it uses 20% of the energy to perform what's needed meaning all these different things that I just described. And effort just adds on another 5%. So if you have no energy left, then doing this particular kind of activity is not going to actually be helpful because your brain needs that energy in order to do something.
0: So is it kind of like you're distracting yourself from from something so that the brain is kind of free to do what the brain does because if you try to think about it too much, uh, you can't really get it?
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, the reality is that most experts would agree that between 90 to 98% of mental activity is unconscious. And I think we've spent a lot of time, I think, in learning at schools, in organizations, focusing on just the 2% of conscious learning. And essentially, what I'm describing in this book is how do you actually get into this 90 to 98% of what's happening under the radar and begin to develop those circuits. And because the brain does most of its intelligent work under the radar, we really need to be able to work with those circuits to get the results that we want.
0: You know what this kind of reminds me of, and you you tell me if this is a reasonable analogy, is you know those those pictures, those computer-generated 3D pictures that if you try too hard, you can't see it, but if you kind of let your vision unfocus, all of a sudden you get it?
1: That's exactly right. You know, it's it's exactly right, and I think it's that kind of metaphor that applies. You know, it's like using low beams and high beams. You, You basically need both in order to navigate any terrain, or if you're on a stage, you need a spotlight, and sometimes you need floodlights. And I think what a lot of people do is they operate in one or the other mode, either super focused or very distracted, not recognizing that when you are unfocused, it actually helps give your focus brain a rest so that when it's time to focus, you can focus optimally as well.
0: Well, and you talked about doing things like knitting and gardening and that kind of thing, but the title of your book makes it sound as if you don't have to specifically have a hobby, you can just doodle and just anything else to kind of take your mind somewhere else.
1: Uh, That's correct. In fact, doodling has been shown to increase retention of information 29% more than not doodling. So there was a study by Jackie Andrade, that actually looked at two groups of people while they were listening to a tape. And they had to remember names and places that were actually mentioned during that tape. And what she found was that the group that doodled remembered 29% more than the group that did not. And in part, you know, I think that's a balance between focus and unfocus. You're not so focused that you're going after everything and anxiously forgetting but you're not completely off task because your mind is on the page, and so your mind is somewhere in the vicinity grasping this information and then integrating this. In fact, one of the main functions of the unfocused circuit in the brain is to actually pick up memories and to integrate them. So even when you're doing something like doodling, that's helpful. And I think with dabbling, there are a lot of examples of dabbling where people have dabbled in different fields and actually had major discoveries. So for example, Uh, Albert Einstein dabbled in the mathematics of Poincaré, and by using what we call possibility thinking, uh, he extended Poincaré's theories to actually develop the theory of relativity. Poincaré developed his theory based on what he could see, and then when there was no more evidence, he stopped. Albert, Albert Einstein said, what if? So he asked a possibility question, and by just dabbling in the mathematics, was able to make a connection with his own field in physics. And similarly, Picasso, by studying and dabbling in the mathematics of Poincaré, was also able to think about the fourth dimension, and this started the Cubist movement in art. So even though these were not their primary modes of interest, simply by dabbling, they were able to make connections in their own fields and feed their own imaginations to move their own fields forward. So yes, it doesn't necessarily involve daydreaming. The whole idea is that if we remain fixed in our interests, and if we remain fixed in the way we think about things, we're not likely to get anywhere fast. And, and just as a point in question, you know, there's been a lot of talk about grit recently, and there's now been a meta-analysis that's looked at grit, and grit has two components to it. One is consistency of interest, which is stay at what you do, never leave it, and the other is persevere, which is try hard. And what the meta-analyses have shown of more than 60,000 people is that grit only has a weak correlation with success. And in particular, the piece that has to do with consistency has no correlation with success at all. And so what I want to do in this book is encourage people to follow their interests, to measure their meanderings, to find ways in which they can meander that can help their unfocused brains get them exactly what they want to get.
0: So knowing what you know, what's the prescription? If you have a a problem, you need to come up with an idea, you need to do something— what should you do as opposed to just sitting there with a blank piece of paper trying to come up with an idea, what do you recommend works better?
1: So there are, there are, there are a lot of different things, and, and these uh, things I actually use throughout the book. One of the things you can do um, is, is firstly build unfocused times into your day. And I would suggest two to three 15-minute periods at times when you know your brain is going to be lagging. So in the morning, for example, you could have some kind of meditation or a walk just after lunch, a 10-minute nap actually improves clarity. A 90-minute nap improves creativity. So if you want to come up with a creative idea and you're feeling completely sluggish, know that you'll need at least 90 minutes to refresh your brain. And then when you have that afternoon slump again, you can then build in an activity like doodling or again like daydreaming that will reactivate your brain so the main thing i think when you're trying to be creative is to make sure that you're not running on empty and that your brain actually has the ability to to be fresh and to come up with ideas when you are in this state the next thing i would recommend is not to feel compelled by starting at the beginning so a lot of people for example when they have writer's block will just start in the middle of an idea and they will they will jot down whatever they want to in the middle of an idea And out of that contemplation, they'll suddenly work their way backwards to try to understand where they want to start. And I think that the creative process becomes halted when we try to go in a very logical way from the beginning to the middle to the end because the creative process is anything but that. You can put it together coherently at the end, but in terms of how it originates, in terms of its genesis, you can really start anywhere along the process so that you can get going.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Srini Pillay. He is a psychiatrist and author of the book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. So Srini, we've talked about all this daydreaming and doodling and dabbling and tinkering, but at what point do you say, okay, that's enough of that, let's stop that and take what we've got here and turn it into something real, and we can't just keep doing this forever?
1: Absolutely. Well, in the creative process, there are two pieces to it. There's the divergent process, which is what I just described, and there's the convergent process. And I actually gave a talk recently at London Business School where I talked to of chief innovation officers of different organizations. And I think everybody agreed that one way you could go about doing this is determine what your benchmarks for productivity are now, this week. So let's say you want to come up with two ideas or finish a particular report in a certain amount of time measure how much time it takes you. Then try out different kinds of unfocused activities like daydreaming or possibility thinking or doodling or any of the suggestions in the book and measure your own productivity because the reality is that certain examples are going to work better for some people than for others. So once you get a sense of what that is, as long as you have some kind of productivity measure, you can then say to yourself, okay, I'm going to spend this number of days being in brainstorming mode, and these two days, I'm going to be pulling my ideas together. And I think that way, by moving between focus and unfocus, you're really utilizing both of the circuits that are important in creativity in the brain, rather than simply driving yourself through to the finish line with focus only or being completely distracted.
0: But there has to be a a time limit to this. I mean, You can only sit there and doodle and daydream for so long before there's a point of diminishing returns, right?
1: I would say that that differs for different people. So in my practice, for example, where people do try this out, there are some people who can go at this for 30 to 45 minutes and be great. There are some people who can't tolerate it for more than five minutes. My recommendation would be start small, two to five minutes, learning that every time you give yourself an unfocused break, you are giving your brain a break, and figure out for yourself what that amount is. If you're asking, is there an optimal time, I would say no because I think it's different for different people.
0: Does this count as what you're talking about? For example, when I do this podcast and I put it all together, the last thing I do is actually the beginning of the podcast and and how I'm going to open the program. And every time I do, what I do is I go over to the couch in my office, I lie down and I close my eyes, and I just let my mind go. And then I come up with a, a, a different or unique way to open the program that I would have never gotten if I stood here and tried to think, how am I going to start this? How am I going to start this? How am I going to start this?
1: Absolutely. In fact, I think that that's a beautiful way to do it because your, your brain, the, the, what the unconscious can do much better than the conscious brain, is that it can very quickly shuttle ideas across your brain, and then it activates these chopsticks, and you start getting these different associations and connections. So for this conversation, you could use the framework of focus or unfocus, or you could use the framework of re-energizing your brain. Or you could use the framework of changing the way you work for productivity. I mean, what, whatever it is that struck you. But I think for, for you to actually express something that's authentic for you, spending that time allows your brain to activate these elements of self that will make the podcast relevant to you, and it will express your authenticity. In fact, this network, the unfocused network, which is also called the default mode network, DMN, which if you can't remember that, I think the easy way to remember that is, we used to think of it as the do-mostly-nothing network. This network actually represents elements of self. And so to the extent that this podcast is going to reflect who you are as an individual in the way in which you bring ideas together, I think that that's a fantastic way to actually bring those ideas together. Because then it will be what I'm saying, what you're saying, in the framework of who you are. Is the
0: brilliant idea in the shower part of this?
1: Yes, it is. In fact, the brilliant idea in the shower is when you let go of this controlling brain and you allow your mind to float. But when I was at this conference, one of the people said to me, you know, I, I definitely buy the idea that, that my best ideas come to me in the shower. The problem is when my mind drifts off, I start to feel guilty. Well, one of the things we need to remember is that most of us drift off about you know, but 46.9% of our day is spent with our minds drifting off. And if we're already spending that much time drifting off, wouldn't we rather drift off using techniques that can activate the circuit rather than using techniques that that are simply about distraction? And I think for a lot of people, there's a sense of guilt, and that probably brings us to a more profound sort of way of thinking about this, because I think philosophically, Kierkegaard, the philosopher, talked about the fact that anxiety was about the dizziness of freedom and that when, even though we say we want to be free, we actually find it really quite anxiety-provoking to be free, because it's like being without gravity. And if you look at, at studies um, at, in, in terms of what goes on in the unconscious when we want to be creative, the findings are rather surprising. What we find from those studies is that even though we say we love creativity and we think it's amazing and we want to be creative, the kinds of words that we associate unconsciously with creativity are words like vomit and agony. And so I think what that teaches us is that even though on the surface we want to be free, we'd love for our minds to roam, we want to have these eureka experiences, we are going to get this pushback from the brain to try to overfocus because the brain's default mechanism is to try to stay on target and on task The problem is that eventually that can lead to depletion and thereby affect both your productivity and creativity. But I think as long as we're aware that that's going to be the brain's default mechanism, the next time you start to feel guilty and you start to want to reject this, recognize that you can take a step back, reframe this as, this is my brain, it's getting anxious, let me try to maybe do smaller periods of time so that I don't completely freak out so that I can re-energize my brain.
0: This must clearly have applications in education, because I think of kids, you know, who are told to, you know, sit still, pay attention, don't doodle. And all of the things that you're talking about uh, are are taught to kids not to do if they want to succeed.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, I think the landscape of education is changing in this regard. So some of the research around this has to do with play. And and rough and tumble play, for example, has actually been shown to improve attention. So people will often say, you know, stop playing and start focusing. But the truth is, having those moments of play can improve attention. And as part of the research of this book, I actually visited a school called Brightworks in San Francisco, uh, which also had a summer school called the Tinkering School. And it was really an astounding experience for me because I was there on a Friday And I've never been at any school on a Friday where the kids look like they're crying because they have to go home, because they love being at school so much. And at Brightworks, there's no organized curriculum, both in terms of math and in terms of language, yet by – and I forget the exact grade, but it's something like the fifth grade. They are two grades more advanced than the rest of the country, suggesting that when you are left to your own devices, you are more likely to tap into your ingenuity – and come up with a sense of intelligence that you would otherwise not come up with. And I think a good example of this is the One Laptop for All project, where this particular company dropped uh, tablets in, in rural Ethiopia where kids had never, ever seen any kind of technology before. And part of what they thought was, you know, what will the kids do? Will they sit on it? Will they want to eat it? Will they touch it? And what they found was that within a couple of hours, they had learned how to, uh, how to how, where the on and off button was, And then a few hours after that, they learned ABC songs, and within a week, they were able to hack Android. And all of this is in kids who had never before encountered technology, suggesting that education is great for structuring intelligence, but it is not necessarily the source of intelligence, and that this ingenuity exists in all of us if we allow it to come out. And as an experiment, when I was actually doing an executive coaching seminar once, I had come up with a new technology with a very, very bright group of executive coaches. And I said, you know, why don't you just take the next half hour, play around with it, and see what you could come up with. And because they were all very highly educated adults, all of them said, you know, there's no instruction manual. We don't know how to work this. And imagine if the kids in Ethiopia had said that. And so I think that the message for a lot of people now is that exploration and curiosity are extremely important and that education may be used to shape that experience rather than to replace the ingenuity that every person comes with.
0: Well, I love this take on creativity because I've never thought and I've never had the experience of being creative by, you know, sitting up straight in a chair with a pencil in my hand and, you know, trying to be creative. It always happens seemingly When I'm doing something else, or or my mind's on something else, or my mind's not on anything at all, but not so much when I'm trying. So I appreciate you sharing all this with us. My guest has been Dr. Srini Pillay. His book is Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. There's a link to his book on Amazon on the show notes page
1: for this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Srini. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to share these ideas, and uh, it's wonderful talking to someone who's as curious as you are as well.
0: Video games are huge, whether it's a little game you play on your phone or tablet, or whether you're playing one of those big epic games on an Xbox or a PlayStation. Video games are everywhere. They're big business. But except as mindless entertainment, are they really something worth looking at more closely? Could they, in fact, be an art form? And and should we care? Here to discuss that is Andrew Irvin. He is a novelist, a writer, and his new book is called Bit by Bit, How Video Games Transformed Our World. Welcome, Andrew.
2: Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here.
0: So what is it that you see as so significant about video games that may be lost on, <laughs> on the rest of us?
2: Uh, I guess since, since we lived in caves, uh, we used smoke and uh, fire and shadow to, to animate the pictures we drew on the walls. Uh, we're doing something very similar now. That innate human need for telling and sharing stories uh, is being done right now by video games uh, in ways that are are super interesting and and super exciting.
0: Well, one of the concerns I know a lot of people have about video games is, yes, they're telling stories, but the most popular games, the ones people play, are stories about shooting people and blowing things up, and, and that's kind of what video games are.
2: That, that's sad and true. Uh, you're absolutely right, Mike, that that is the common perception, and, and it has that perception with, with good reason, that the best-selling games every year are first-person shooters, uh, and these games are, are uh, as disturbing to me as, as I think they would be to, to you or, or any, you know, uh, anybody. They're, they're, they're very upsetting uh, for the most part. Even shooting digital representations of things bothers me a great deal. Um, but just as the, the most popular Hollywood movies tend to be you know, superheroes beating each other up and blowing up the world or saving the world, video games do the same thing. But that doesn't mean there aren't also great cinema uh, movies coming around. That The local art house is showing uh, great stories. Uh, video games work the, much the same way. But yes, there are huge explosive blockbusters, and those tend to be the ones that get all the attention uh, and, and get the most fans. But there's still these great little games out there that I, I hope more people will start paying attention to.
0: Games like what?
2: Well, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York has started to add some video games to their collection. and there's a, That's a good place to start. Uh, everybody I know now has an iPhone, so the, the, there's one game in MoMA's collection called Passage. Uh, it takes five minutes to play, and within that five minutes of a very simple and even crude-looking game, we experience the entire lifetime. Uh, of one character, uh, of one avatar. Uh, and it's a profoundly moving experience because every decision we make in the game opens up new options and closes off some, which to me sounds an awful lot like my real life.
0: What's the game?
2: That's, uh, that's called Passage. It's by a, a man named Jason Rohrer. Uh, another great iPhone game uh, in the, the MoMA collection is called Cannabalt, it's by a man named Adam Saltzman, and this is almost the exact opposite. It's this kinetic, frantic uh, runner game that, that just, the music is pounding and it gets your heart pumping, and, and one can feel a true adrenaline rush um, from this little simple game played on a phone. So the, 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 the range of human experiences and human emotions uh, now possible with this medium um, is very interesting to me
0: but this but this is a tiny piece of the video game world i mean this is not what when you talk to gaming people this is this is not what they talk
2: about no that's true um There are also great games across every platform, Uh, on your home computer, if you have a console to hook up to your television, like an Xbox or a PlayStation. Uh, We're getting to the point now, Mike, where on uh, whatever the technology that you have at your disposal, you can now find truly artistic experiences with video games.
0: So where are where are we headed with this? Where are video games going? Or have we reached a, a bit of a plateau in the sense that, that the majority of them are going to ha- be violent and they're going to be shooting things? And that that's just because that's who plays the game are, you know, teenage boys who like to shoot things and blow things up.
2: That That's who plays those games for sure. What I've learned in my research is that almost 50% of gamers are women. That came as a, quite a surprise to me. Uh, uh, There are more people playing video games than ever before. The the age range is is, uh, higher higher than I would have thought. It's grown-ups. I'm I'm in my mid-40s. I'm a literary novelist. Uh, I I used to be an an art critic and a classical music critic. Not a very likely person to to be writing a book about video games. But for for those of us with with real intellectual curiosity, it's at the point now where we can't ignore what this medium has to teach us.
0: And what does this medium have to teach us?
2: All the things that we would want from any work of art. A great novel can, can teach us empathy. Uh, a great painting, an, an opera, all of these things can, can broaden our emotional palette. It, it can teach us different ways of thinking about ourselves and thinking about our world. There there are great video games such as a Journey, which is on the PlayStation, created by a man named Genova Chen. that the The experience of um, feeling lost uh, and lonely, and and searching for something, and trying to solve puzzles, uh, it, it is as beautiful and, and transformative as, as an artistic experience as as Citizen Kane or or Ulysses. And I say this as a huge Wells fan, as as the world's biggest Joyce fan. Uh, it, it's really exciting to see that this new. Form uh, a new medium is is able to do some of the same things.
0: Well, you know it's interesting. I have two boys, fifteen and ten, and the the other day I saw them playing Pong. Oh, really? I thought, well, that's that's interesting. Now that's a game I I can I can play that.
1: Yeah,
2: Pong's a classic. It Um, is. And what's what's going to happen with with Owen is. He's learning at this new high-speed visual rhetoric, and visual vernacular, that, that we didn't learn growing up, uh, that he's being subjected to or, or having access to uh, a whole new kind of, of reading the world. And he's doing it with his fingertips. He's doing it with his eyes. He's doing it with, with a, a set of tools that, that we weren't using in quite the same way. And I think that's, that's spectacular. I think this is great. Um, And what's going to happen is, is or I think what happened to to us for for a previous generation, is we got to a point um, where the controllers that we would use to play the game got so complicated and so complex and they had so many buttons that it began to feel like work. It began to feel like this is no longer fun to play a game. Uh, And I think part of the the popularity of something like the Wii uh, with the different kind of controllers is it, it brought some of us old-timers back into the fold. Uh, but someone like, like Owen, he's never going to have that learning curve the, the way we did. Well,
0: but he had a Wii, and, and he doesn't play it anymore.
2: Uh, I wonder why that is. Maybe he'll get back to it. Maybe because it, it was uh, so radical to us is exactly why it, it's mundane to him. That you know, the, the, What made that compelling to, to those of us who grew up with one joystick and one button you know, maybe that, that's no longer exciting for, you know, someone who's, who's used to 3D graphics and, you know, all, all these other elements.
0: Right. And when I think of Wii, I think of like Wii bowling and Wii tennis and Wii ping pong and, and you know, the, the, where you, you know, you're hitting a ball or you're doing something as opposed to fantasy, total fantasy, where you're, you know, in, on another planet blowing up m- monsters.
2: That's right. The, the the interface of the Wii, though, is is what made it radical, and I don't think that uh, Nintendo's creators really found the right games for that console to, to bring out that potential. Well, but the the, the the actual way we inter we uh, interact with the game was was fantastic.
0: But then it's interesting how it works that that because. The games uh, aren't what people want. Then, then there's fewer games, and then there's fewer games, and that even if the, they wanted to play it, the, the, there's no games for it.
2: No, it's, that's exactly it. Uh, and it, it's like the Hollywood syndrome with the the superhero movies. And I, I enjoy these movies; I'll go see them and, and everything. But you know, it's it's the same story retold in, in different costumes, and we, we see that with with video games. You know, the sequel after sequel after sequel of the blockbusters. But it's, it is worth um, searching out the more thoughtful and the more interesting games, the ones that are created by, by uh, some artists and people who work in academia. Um, the, my book is, is trying to address uh, those of us who, who want to know more about this medium um, but do, don't really trust the, the violence and the, the, the blockbuster mentality.
0: Well, I've often joked with my son about how, you know, what, why don't you get a game about, you know, cake decorating or something? And, you know, it, and he said, well, there aren't any, and, and why would I want to play that? And, and I think that, you know, there is a concern that, that parents have that, that just like they have about violent movies, that, that this breeds violence and that, that this is something to be concerned about if you're a parent of a, of a b- boy or, or a girl that's playing these games.
2: Uh, There's definitely been a huge debate about that, the the difference or or the combination of real-world violence and video game violence, and uh, I I don't think there's ever going to be a a firm answer to that. Um, I personally don't enjoy violent games. I I don't have kids, but I I don't play them with my my young nephews. Uh, It's simply a a kind of uh, experience that, that doesn't interest me. Um, but there are games, if not about cake decorating and I wouldn't be surprised if you could find that. Um, there's a game called Flower and it's the entire game involves um, flying around through through flower gardens. Um, and it, it sounds kind of silly maybe, but it's also this this new kind of storytelling, this new kind of digital interaction that that is beautiful and the music's interesting and and we can we can connect to, to things uh, in this medium that aren't violent and aren't angry uh, and aren't aggressive, that they, they are out there. Uh, and those are the exact games that I've tried to write about.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that I think a lot of us would think that there aren't enough of those to write a book about, that it's, it's really, a, that's a very fringy part of the video game business.
2: Uh, that's right. Um, and those games do, probably don't make a lot of money. So there's very little incentive to uh, to keep making them, uh, but writing a novel is, is a leap of faith. You, know, you can trust me on that. Uh, creating a, a painting in, in your studio is is a, a leap of faith. There's there's no telling um, if the work an artist does is ever going to find an audience, if if she's ever going to have have viewers. Um, but there are people taking that same mentality, sitting at their computers, that designing things. Uh, interactive experiences, emotional experiences that um, not knowing if people are, are ever going to look at them or not. Uh, and so obviously the, there are many of them that we'll, we'll never hear of. Um, every once in a while a, a game will come out that that's truly remarkable. And I, I hope I can, I can help point people to those.
0: So we sort of talked about it, but we went in a different direction. But where, where do you see the future of video games? What's the, what's the next big thing, do you think?
2: Well, people have been talking about virtual reality for so long that it's sort of the, the boy who cried wolf a little bit. Um, maybe there will be uh, some good virtual reality games soon, but I, I'm not going to hold my breath on that one, Mike. I think there's, there's far more potential for what's uh, being called virtual uh, what's the term? Uh, augmented reality games. Uh, did Owen play Pokemon Go on his phone last year? Yeah,
0: just Again. for a while, and then he quickly uh, he quickly bailed on that. But my seven year old still likes it.
2: Oh, great! Yeah, so this is one. That's the perfect example of um, augmented reality where you're, you're looking at a map of, of your neighborhood or your street or your town, uh, and then the the programmers have digitized experiences that overlay on top of it. I use a very similar technology for stargazing. I have an app where I, I can uh, see the, the stars and constellations superimposed on the dark sky, and it, it gives some, some clarity to what I'm looking at. I think video games are going to continue to use that technology um, and that the mobile technology in, in in really fun ways.
0: Well, great. Well, I think that's really interesting. and, and... I, I, you know what, it's kind of refreshing to hear because I'm not that into it, so I think of video games as the kind of games that, that Owen plays, the, the violent, you know, blow-em-up superhero games. And it's nice to hear that there, there's this whole other side to it that uh, I think most people don't even know about.
2: No, it's, it's true. Uh, they, it, they have their, their own subculture regions of fans, but those that, it's not really crossing over into uh, mainstream culture yet. Uh, but again, like the Museum of Modern Art bringing games in, that's going to help. The Smithsonian had an exhibition a few years ago on the art of video games. So we're going to start seeing this, this overlap a bit more. The, the, the subculture is not as, as sub as it once was.
0: Well, it's interesting because I think it shows a side of video games most people aren't aware of or don't really think much about. Andrew Irvin has been my guest. His book is Bit by Bit, How Video Games Transformed Our World and you will find a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Andrew.
2: Mike, I, I'm grateful for, for you uh, having me on, and, and thanks so much.
0: This is something I've thought about since I was a kid, and apparently so have some other people thought about it. You know who Dr. Shafali is, uh, Oprah Winfrey's go-to parenting expert? Well, among her many messages to parents is to stop The double standard parenting. For example, if you as a parent accidentally knock over and break a lamp in your house, do you then punish yourself and take away privileges and make yourself feel shame and ridicule? Of course not, because it was just an accident. But what happens if your kid accidentally knocks over and breaks a lamp? A lot of parents do exactly those things they punish the child and they take away privileges and We don't expect ourselves or our spouse or our friends to be perfect. So why do we expect our kids to be? Why aren't they allowed to make mistakes and have accidents without suffering all sorts of serious consequences? An accident is an accident, whether you do it or your child does it. And the advice is to hold your kid to the same standards you hold yourself to, but not to a higher one. And that's the program today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know.